Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of life in fellowship with you. Uh, we thank you for this letter from John in which we learn so much about what it means to live and love uh, inside your fellowship. So we pray that as we hear these words that uh, we we come to trust and believe even more in the salvation that you have already given us so that we can live lives that are fruitful and profitable for your kingdom. We thank you for the rewards that you have waiting for us in heaven. We pray that we might be faithful to attain to those awards, to walk in the works that you have already prepared for us ahead of time. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We're coming very near the end of the book. In fact, I had originally planned to finish First John this morning, but John does something I often do, and he accidentally, although he probably didn't accidentally do it, he accidentally opens up a can of worms. Uh, and you can see in his writing that he explains without really explaining because he wants to move on and get to the point. Uh, but there is a parenthetical statement in here. There is a sin not leading to death. There is also a sin leading to death. So we're going to talk about that this morning because there's a lot of different ideas about what that means, and it seems pretty clear. Um, if your theology is aligned correctly with God's Word, uh, what that is and what that is not. And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad explanations about what that is, too. But this morning, we particularly want to focus on the idea of the confidence that we have that comes out of our eternal life. Because we have eternal life and because we are absolutely confident that this is sealed and secured in Jesus, in His finished work and not in our work, there are a plethora of blessings that come out of this. Paul calls it in Ephesians, the riches of grace that are lavishly poured on us. And one of those is the confidence that we can have when we approach the throne of God in prayer. The main idea for this morning's sermon is that because we are children of God, and remember how many times John has affirmed that in this little epistle, we can come to him confidently with our requests and never fear that he has not heard us or answered our prayers. When we are in fellowship, we pray in his will, and our prayers are granted. It is God's will that we love each other, and think of how often Paul or John has exhorted us to love one another. This is the point he's getting to. It is God's will that we love each other by praying for one another, and the spiritual growth and maturity of our siblings in Christ. We are meant to grow up in our faith, not to remain as children in Christ. God will faithfully restore the believer whose rebellion against God has not resulted in maximum temporal punishment, which is physical death. So we do have this promise. We have this promise that we have eternal life. We can rest in that assurance. Remember, when John told us that we have confidence when our heart does not condemn us, but then he went on to say there's a better confidence than looking at your own works, than looking at your own state of, of being, but rather looking at God's word and what it says about who you are. So in 1 John 5, he spent the first 12 verses explaining to us that testimony of God, the testimony of God that is better than any testimony of man, and that is that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You're not waiting for eternal life in the future. It is a present possession and a present reality. And when he speaks of eternity and eternal life, he's not talking about duration. He's talking about quality. Because every person who has ever been created will exist forever. 
in one place or another, you do not begin to have a, have a future of eternal existence. You begin to have a future of eternal life together with Jesus Christ because his life has been given to you. And so in 1 John 5.13, John makes his big turn from the doctrine of his book into the practical application. This is similar to Paul, but Paul usually gives us about half and half, half doctrine and then half application. John spends almost the entire book giving us confidence in our eternal life. Confidence in our security, confidence that when we grow up, we enjoy that salvation that has been given to us already. And so here he is going to exhort us to grow up, to be confident, to trust in God's finished work, and to let that work into our spiritual lives in prayer for one another, seeking to restore one another to build each other up into spiritual maturity. And that also will come with a little warning. 1 John 5.11, remember, said this is, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. That is a perfect tense. It is something that is finished on the basis of Christ's finished work. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, a present reality. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And so then the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony, which is eternal life in himself. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So if you remember last week, if you don't believe God's testimony concerning his son, that eternal life has been given concerning his son, then you don't believe God. And if you don't believe God, you must think he's either crazy or a liar. Either one is simply ridiculous. These things then John specifically wrote to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, this book is written to believers. This book is written to those who already presently possess eternal life, and they need to learn how to use that. They need to learn what that means for them, for their future and for their present. 1 John 5.1, remember, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. If we have this eternal life, if we have been born of God, the result should be that we love the other children born of God. This is the maturity that we seek as we rest in Christ's finished work. And so he concludes this little turnabout in the end of verse 13 by saying, He's written all of these things to believers who possess eternal life for the purpose of, so that you may know. And remember, there's two different kinds of knowing in Greek. There's one that's knowing experientially to come to a point where you even feel that this is true. This is a different one. This is to know a fact. You know, you don't always feel saved. You don't always feel like you're on good terms with God. This can wreck your assurance if your assurance is placed on how you feel rather than on God's testimony. God's testimony is where our assurance should be. So then whether we feel it or not, we know this fact. And this is in the perfect tense. And remember that perfective aspect in Greek speaks of an intensity. This is something that is so complete, so finished, 
that this could never become questionable. We know we have the absolute certainty that we have eternal life. And it's on that foundation that we have confidence. And it's in that confidence that we move forward in our spiritual life. If you continue to just waver and wonder whether or not your salvation is secure or complete, or if you did it right, or if Jesus has done it completely, you will never move past square one in your spiritual growth. Because you will have never learned to trust God, to rest in his finished work, and to move beyond into the life that he has prepared for you, into the joy of fellowship. 1 John 5, 9, remember, said, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. This is a more trustworthy thing than any testimony that you can give to your own heart, than the apostles could give you. This is the word of God delivered by the apostles. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So none of us at this point should question at all whether or not we are eternally secure in the Savior. If you have simply shifted your trust from yourself and your own works to Jesus and his works, if you have believed in his death and resurrection, this is a present reality for you and everything that comes from it is opened up to you. 1 John 5.14 says, this is the confidence which we have before him. And in the English, we don't get this little particle chi, which connects it with the previous context and says, these are both talking about the same thing. This is not a new topic. This is not something different. Because of the assurance that you have, you have confidence before him. So this is the confidence which we have before him as sharing in the same life that he presently possesses because we have become children of him sharing in his nature by the gift of his son, Jesus. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If you are a child of God, if you pray to your father, he hears you. This is an incredible truth. 1 John 2.28, remember speaking of contact or confidence, and this is the first time John brings it up when he's speaking to the little children in chapter 2. He says, now little children abide in him. That means remain, don't walk outside of fellowship with him, but remain in fellowship with him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink away from him in the shame at his coming. This makes me think of a recent movie quote that I heard, and it's a little nerdy, so I won't tell you which movie it is. But this one tribe of people moves into another tribe and they're trying to learn to live like that other tribe. And the chief of the one tribe says to the others, you must learn the way that we live here or else suffer the fate of being useless. It's not what you expect, but it's pretty harsh, isn't it? You don't want to be useless. Well, that's what's going on here. John is trying to lift these children up so that they don't suffer the fate of being useless for God. He wants them to have confidence and not shrink away at his coming because they have lived well in this life. Sometimes that means suffering well. Other times, and this can even be harder, that means prospering well. Not getting rich, but managing it well for God. Serving him 
with your resources that you do have and praising him in the resources that you don't have. 1 John 3.21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is just one of those natural consequences that he is telling us. This isn't a prescription. This is a matter of fact. If we don't have sin that's nagging on our heart, we naturally have confidence in God. It's when our heart starts to convict us of the sin within that we start to doubt God. But didn't he take care of our sin when we first believed in him? He takes care of our sin continually because we still have a sin nature. And until we see him again and until that nature is gone and done away with and the new nature becomes all that there is, when, as Paul says, this body of death is finally off my back, until that time, we have the possibility of our heart condemning us. But we should know that that does not mean God has condemned us. Because it's not about our works, it's about his works. There is a place for good works in the believer, but salvation is not that place. It is not anything to do with your salvation. If our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. That's a matter of fact. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And remember, what was his commandment? He tells us just a verse later. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And remember, John goes on to develop what all that meant. That means believing in him and his finished work. We believe that he is who he said he is and that he did what he says he did. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who can and has died for our sins and was raised up on the third day, according to the scriptures, so that we also share in that life. We believe this. We are commanded to believe this. This is God's will, that we believe this and continue, and he continues, and to love one another. This should be a result of our salvation. Maturity, when it hits its climax, should be consistent and continual love for one another. This is the aim. This is the direction. Remember, I've used this illustration a few times that when I was learning to drive, I learned not to look five feet ahead, but 500 yards ahead. Look onto the horizon and you will aim straight. John gives us the aim. Loving one another is that aim. Living well in fellowship with our brothers and sisters while we await to be in the presence of our Lord. This is the aim because remember what else he said in 1 John that God has demonstrated his love towards us and that he gave his son. That's not 1 John. But 1 John 4.16 and 4.17 told us about the love that he had for us in sending his son to die for us and that we experience that love when love works in the body of Christ. Until we see Jesus face to face, the love of Jesus is experienced in the body of Christ. This is why Hebrews tells us not to forsake the meeting of the body. Because if you are a Christian who is not in fellowship with other Christians, you are going to be starving for the actual experience of this love. Because the love of Christ is a finished and completed fact in history. Remember, that's true whether or not we feel it or experience it. But if you want to feel it working, 
participate in the body of Christ and grow up and mature. Mature believers love one another with the love of Christ. This is the goal. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. When we keep believing and we keep growing, we are in fellowship with him. We are resting in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Remember, as Mark has told us a few times, maybe you said it yesterday when no one else was around, but... Oh, now I lost my train of thought anyways. You can tell him later. <laughs> I don't know either. First John 4.16 says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us. Remember, perfect love is love that reaches its goal, being made mature. God's love has extended out towards us. And love that is perfected or matured is love that is reciprocated back towards God. See, God loves us whether or not we are rebelling against him or not. He is our Father, and He loves us, and in fact, He even loves those who have not yet come to faith in Him. He loved them enough to send His Son to die for them, because Jesus died for sinners, so that they could become saved. So by this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in the world. And so we are children of God. We stand confidently before the throne and we make our petitions. When we are in fellowship with him, when we are asking according to his will, those things will be granted because he is a father and not a stingy father either. Matthew 7, 8, Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees about this topic. And he says, for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil, speaking to the Pharisees, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask him. Now, I've thought about this a lot, and, you know, I have this sort of relationship with my dad, too. We probably all do. If I ever get in uh, money problems, which I had quite often through college, I could call him up and say, hey, Dad, I need some help. And, you know, if he had the resources, he would usually send it. Sometimes it would show up as a surprise. But you know what? I didn't just expect that every month it's going to show up in my account. When I needed it, I would call him. And I called him again. And I would call him again. But you see, my dad has limited resources. And sometimes limited patience for his son. But when he had it, he would give it. Now, my dad is an unbeliever. This is very true. Even unbelieving Fathers are generous towards their children. Now your father, God in heaven, who has no limit on his resources, who has no limit on his love for you, 
who loves you so much that he sacrificed his son so that you could become his son. What else could he keep from you? He has already given you the greatest thing, his son. Now, if we use the common Jewish frame of logic called Kalwayom, or moving from the greater to the lower, if he has already given you the greatest, why would you doubt that he would give you the lesser? The problem usually is, are we asking in his will? You see, God is not going to answer prayers that contradict his will. God, I really wish you'd give that Christian what's coming to him. That's not going to be in his will. I mean, he might be disciplining that believer, but it's not going to be answering your prayer. In fact, you might even have to get a little chastening for that. Because he wants to grow you up and mature you to the point where you look at your brother and sister and want to restore them into fellowship. Not to have them get what's coming to them. Now, I have three siblings, and quite often, one of the siblings will get in trouble and we'll all run into the other room. I mean, this doesn't happen. Any, eh, it might happen sometimes still. But we want, like, we want to hear the other one getting punished, you know? What did they do? What happened? What's mom going to do to him? It's good fun. But that's not very mature. We're supposed to grow out of being like that. Remember 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. We are his children. We are his representatives in the world. We're out in the play yard playing with a bunch of kids that aren't our siblings. Now, if we're beating them up to a pulp, how long do you think it's going to be before your parents call you home and say, knock it off? Or come over and have to give you a swat, maybe even in front of your friends. That's embarrassing. Because the goal of training up a child is teaching them what they need when they're young so that when they're old, they don't go on doing those things, getting worse and worse and worse. Because sin has this tendency to get worse and worse and worse. God takes care of it early on in our lives. And if we're not responsive to him taking care of it, sometimes more drastic measures have to be taken. So we have this guarantee that our prayers will be answered when they're in his will. We know for certain that if we are praying, he is hearing us. And these prayers in his will, we have these requests. Now, interestingly, this is in the present tense. This is not in the future as we would expect in the Greek text. The prayer has already been answered whether you have experienced the answer to that prayer or not. I think of this a lot like having a promise from a parent to pay a college tuition. Now, I might ask my parents, and if they have no limit on resources, which was not my case, his parents might very generously say to their child, yes, we will pay for your college tuition. Now, I might stomp my feet and say, well, I don't see the money. Where is it? And they might say, well, right now you're five years old. You won't see this for another 13 years. Some of our prayers aren't answered right away the way they appear. But the prayer is answered on God's end. If we ask for things, these things are in his will, he has granted them. 
James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. There's the other side of the coin. You ask and you do not receive because you've asked with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, I told you that occasionally in my past, I've had to ask my dad for help with money. And he was usually very generous to help. But now if he saw me on Instagram flouting all the luxury items that I'm buying with the money he's helping me with, and then I call him up next week and say, I just can't afford it this month. What do you think he's going to say? No, and it's not to hurt me. It's to teach me how to manage my money. It's to be a parent, to be a father, to say, no, you're not doing this right. You are not growing up, and I'm not always going to be here to bail you out. So learn it while you're young. God is always going to be there to bail us out. But you know what? He's still going to chasten a child in order that they grow. So how do we know what is his will? This is usually the hardest one or the hardest thing about this for Christians to understand. Okay, we know he's going to answer our prayers. We can know that he's going to answer them right away. We know that we have that guarantee that we can stand before him confidently. But here's the issue. How do we know that we're actually praying for things we're going to get? How do we know the will of God? And unfortunately, this is kind of revealing about the current state of Christianity. Because you know the will of God from his word. And too many Christians do not know his word. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? With his word. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians tells us. How do we appropriate the mind of Christ? How do we think his thoughts after him? We read what his thoughts are. How do you come to know anyone? If you sit quietly beside someone for 10, 20, 30 years, how well are you going to know them? But if you have conversations for 10, 20, 30 years, you will know this person. In fact, at that point, you might even be able to sit silently beside them and know what they're thinking. You know this person. Do you know God? Do you know who he is? He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove. This is the Greek word that means examine or test or determine. You know, in uh, the Greek goes into the Spanish, into the verb probare, which means to test or to taste. Have you tasted what the will of God is? This is kind of like a taste test. It has a similar meaning back in the Greek. Examining, testing, determining. What is it? We want to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul has a similar thing to say in the book of Philippians. I think it's in uh, chapter 3 where he goes on and tells them about all of the good and acceptable things that they should be thinking and then as a result should be doing. They first have to get their mind straight, the way they're thinking about things, so that they can understand the will of God based on his word, so that they act in the will of God. 
Now, 1 Thessalonians is one of the best books to go to to see what is the will of God expressed to us in the church. And I think this is not without a mistake, is this is the first epistle that Paul ever wrote to a church. Galatians may have come earlier, but 1 Thessalonians is the earliest that we can be certain of its date. And he is writing to this church that he didn't get to spend much time in to tell them the things that he didn't have time to tell them. And a lot of that is, what is the will of God? He says, finally then, brethren, we, the apostles, request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel more. We told you some of the basics about what God expects of you. We expect you to continue in this and to even improve in this. What is Paul saying? Based on the revelation, the revealed will of God that we gave you in the scriptures, we expect you to mature, to grow up. He continues, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Remember, this is phase two salvation. After your justification, you are progressively sanctified until the Lord comes back to glorify you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He saved you eternally and secured you, not for the purpose that you can go on sinning. This is Paul's argument in Romans 6. But so that you would grow up and live in accordance with that salvation that you have. Otherwise, you're the bully on the playground who just cannot get it through his thick skull how to treat other people. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Later on, he kind of gives it to us rapid fire, and he says, always seeking after that which is good for one another and for all people. And there's a simple answer for what that is. Whatever the will of God is, is good for others. Not whatever they say they need or whatever they request, but whatever is good. You see, someone can come up to you on the street and ask you for drugs. They've asked you for it. They've made a request for it. They think it's good for them. You have to discern, is this good for them? And how do you discern? You know the word of God. You know that this is not God's will for this person to live in such a way. And so it is good for that person that they don't get their request. The same thing happens when we pray. When we ask God for something that is not in his will, it is good for him not to answer that prayer. Because it is not good for us to walk outside of his will. It would be, in essence, God answering a prayer that we step outside his fellowship. This is often a foolish prayer that comes from not knowing his word and not knowing his will. And, I mean, I love my little nephew, but sometimes he's had some foolish prayers. And I see he's growing up. It's kind of fun to watch him learn to pray. He's three years old. But I hope that as he grows up, he matures and he learns the things to pray and you don't need to pray for your boots and you don't need to pray for your baby Dino, which is a, a make-believe friend of his. 
But the prayers for mommy and daddy, those are good prayers. We learn what the will of God is. We mature. We grow up. We learn how to pray. You need to be reading your Bibles to know how to pray because you need to know the will of God. Anyways, he continues, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. This is kind of the uh, beginning of this long litany of things he's going to give us about the will of God. Now right here we can stop and say, okay, I haven't done that. Rejoice always. This is the will of God, that in all things we are thankful and praising him. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then he says, do not quench the spirit. What does it mean to quench the spirit? When doctrine is revealed and applied by the spirit, and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. This is quenching the spirit. We know this is good. We know this is right. We know this is the will of God. And if we say, nope, that's not for me, we're saying, God, your fellowship is not for me. I'd just like to step out for a minute. And what comes after that, our rebound exercise, 1 John 1, 9. When we confess our is not on the screen. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession means agreeing with him. Disagreeing with him, quenching the spirit, saying, nope, that's not for me. This puts you out of fellowship. This is walking contrary to his will. But walking in his will is agreeing with him about your sinfulness, not taking care of it yourself, not saying, okay, I'm so penitent. I'll, I'll stop this. I'll do this. I'll make a million promises to you. It's understanding that your sin is cleansed by no one else but Jesus Christ. And you continue to believe in him. You go to him for the help. You go to him to grow up. 1 John 3, 23 says, This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. How do we do that then? We are moving from this promise of confidence before the throne in prayer. When we are praying in his will, and we know that the will of God is that we continue to believe in him, and that we love one another. John is going to put this into practice for us, and this is John's version of the law of Messiah. Paul tells us the law of Messiah in Galatians 6.1. He says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, meaning those in fellowship, those growing in their maturity, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. John is telling us that spiritual maturity means having confidence in God's testimony that we are saved and that we can stand confidently before the throne in prayer and that his will for us is to love one another and how then should that work? We should use our confidence before the throne 
to pray for one another, to petition God on the behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a first and foremost way of how we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are seeking their good on behalf of the Father. This is intercession or intercessory prayer. John says, if anyone sees his brother, and remember what a brother is in John's context, it is anyone born of God, a fellow believer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give for him, give him, for him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Now in the NASB translation, there is an A before the sin. In Greek, there is only one article, the definite article. There is no indefinite article. So it is always up to the interpreter to try to understand, is this introducing a new item with a specific referent? Or is this introducing a new item with no specific referent? If it has a specific referent, then the English requires an indefinite article A. If it's not specific, then there should be no definite article. And this trips up a lot of people because they spend most of the pages in their commentaries trying to identify what is the sin not leading to death and what is the sin leading to death. And some will divide them out into these columns. These ones will lead to death. These ones won't lead to death. But the irony is most of the sins that lead to physical death that we see in scripture are the ones that they put in the column of not that bad. Like lying. Why were Ananias and Sapphira cut short in their life? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit, which is God. Verse 17, which I don't have yet on the screen, is going to tell us that all unrighteousness is sin. All sin leads to death. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. That is, when he is led by the flesh and not by the Spirit. When he is walking outside of fellowship with God. Each one is enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, meaning produced, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What does Romans 6.23 tell us? The wages of sin is death. There is not some unrighteousness. There is not some lawlessness, as John also puts it in the third chapter, that doesn't lead to death. The issue isn't what kind of sins can I get away with, but it's what do I do about my sin? Not leading to death in the Greek actually has no verb in it, no leading. It's just a preposition, meaning to move in the direction of. When we learn Greek in seminary, we get these wonderful diagrams with these prepositions. And they put all the ones on the right side that say, okay, we're moving towards something. Moving in that direction. Ace is moving into it. We actually enter that thing and so on and so forth. Now, perhaps this will be a little uh, better. I kind of prefer this one. These are 12 different prepositions with mice acting out the activity. 
And here's our little preposition down here, this mouse whose name is Pross. And he is running full bore towards this cheese. This is kind of the idea here. Are we letting our sin drive us towards the maximum punishment that a believer can face, which is being called home, being taken out of the way, being taken off the playground? Well, this mouse is gunning it for that cheese. The sin unto death is gunning it for the flesh, running towards that sin. And when opportunity comes to agree with God about your sin, saying, nope, nope, not for me. This is sin unto death. Sin without rebound. Sin without laying it at the feet of God and saying, yes, I agree with you. This sin is sinful. Thank you for taking care of it for cleansing me of it and walking in fellowship with him. It's continual rebellion. That is sin unto death. And so what is John telling us to do here? In 1 John 5, 16, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing such a sin, running towards death without stopping, he shall ask and God will for him give life. God is granting this on behalf of the one who is in fellowship, praying for the one who is not in fellowship. Petitioning God that he restore him to fellowship, that he bring him to the point where he agrees with God about his sin. James 5.13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he is to sing praises. This sounds a lot like what uh, Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians about the will of God. In all things, rejoicing, praising, praying. But then he says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now we might ask, why the elders specifically? Well, because we know that the elders are what John, in his book, would have called the fathers. We've got the fathers, the young men, and the children in John's book, and those fathers are those who are mature in their faith, who have long suffered with the Lord, who have proven themselves mature in the body, because these are the most likely ones to be in fellowship with God at any given time. It is one in fellowship with God who comes to petition for one who is not. In 1 Timothy 3.2, we get the qualifications of an overseer or an elder. He says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. In other words, not led astray like the young men that John talked about, who might be tempted by the things of the world. And run after those. These are stable, mature Christians. And not a new convert. So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That pride that he felt in being the most beautiful creature and so rebelling against God. Wanting to impose his own will over God's kingdom and in, in so doing creating a cosmos system opposed to God's will. 
He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. These are believers that you can expect at any given time to be in fellowship with God because they have long suffered in this chastisement and growing up in their faith. They're not new converts. They have spent time with the Lord and they have yielded to his chastening. These are the ones you call on when you need help, when you need prayer, when you need a brother or sister to come alongside you in prayer and petition the Lord on your behalf to restore you to fellowship. James 5.15 says, The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. In faith here is John's way of saying in fellowship. They are continuing to believe. They are with the Lord. They are standing confidently before his throne and they know that the Lord hears them. And God will answer this prayer. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now this idea of raising up, I do not think this means physically. I think this means restoring him spiritually. Where this person's volition moves positively towards God. Praying for this one who is sick so that they might exercise 1 John 1.9 to agree with God about their sinfulness and have their sins washed. To be restored to that fellowship and be restored from the temporary punishment that they were enduring in order to bring them to a place where they would turn back towards God rather than turning away in rebellion. And we know this because James 5.16 continues on to give us a few more details. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is the exact same thing John is telling us. Now, James was written before any of the books of Paul were written. And 1 John was the very last one written. Not much has changed from the very beginning of the church to the very last record that we have from an apostle. The goal of spiritual growth is to mature, to love one another, to be in fellowship with God, and to petition God for others that they also grow up in their faith. James 5.19 then says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, brings him to that point where he is willing to confess his sins to God, to agree with God about his sinfulness. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul. This is the Greek word suke, which means natural life. He will save his soul from death, physical death, and will cover a multitude of sins. The one who brings his brother in Christ to the point of exercising 1 John 1, 9, has restored that brother because they have loved him, because Christ has loved them, and they understand what that means. Now, this is a word that I actually had to look up, so I'm giving you the definition as well. Indemnification is to secure against hurt, loss, or damage. 
And this is the purpose of the consequences for the sin unto death. That when one is running full bore in rebellion against God, in order to secure this believer against the hurt and loss and damage of becoming useless, God may take him home. Once again, this is not a specific sin. All sin is unrighteousness. But this is the attitude we have about sin. As we are sinning, we are going in the direction of death because we are not responding to God's chastening. So there is sin leading to death. And this brings us to the doctrine of divine discipline. God treats us like children because we are his children. He loves us, and this is why he disciplines us. We can say certainly that the discipline of a rebellious child is not the same as punishment of a rebel enemy. When we are experiencing the chastening of God, we are not being punished for being terrible brutes. We are being disciplined with the goal of restoration, of improvement, of growth. This is why any parent disciplines a child. Hebrews tells us as much in chapter 12. And Hebrews is an interesting book because the whole book is in response to Israel's national sin against God. And to remember back in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, what is Israel but God's firstborn son? God is restoring them. He has promised a future restoration. And he is telling these Hebrews as they come up on 70 AD to get out of Jerusalem, to stop practicing rabbinic Judaism, which has rejected the Messiah. Because the discipline of God is coming on first century Israel for their rebellion against him. And those who participate in that rebellion in rabbinic Judaism are going to be caught up in that judgment. The whole book of Hebrews is about restoring believers who have reverted back to their previous way of life. And so in Hebrews 12, nearing the end of Hebrews, he says, My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. I mean, all of us have gotten the belt on occasion, and most of us, at least, respected our parents now, but not then. Then it was a little tough. When we're getting the belt, we uh, are not thinking pleasant thoughts towards our parents. But the older you get, the less you get the belt, and the more you appreciate that you ever did. We respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. You see, a parent will on occasion, because they also have a sin nature and are sinful beings, will punish a child not to reprove him towards the will of God, but towards their own will, whether that be in alignment with God or not. 
And when this happens, this can cause bitterness. But also a child who does not understand the loving discipline of a parent might become bitter. And how many Christians not understanding the loving discipline of God, trying to move them towards maturity, become less and less and less mature as they refuse to bend towards God's will. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Most well-situated adults that you meet had a parent who was faithful to the Lord to discipline their child and to raise them up in the way that they should go. The abuse of this discipline can cause, unfortunately, uh, different results as well. Now in Leviticus, we do get cycles of discipline that God promises his son, Israel. Actually, we get it in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 29 in the uh, repetition of the law. He gives them five cycles. He says, the first time you rebel against my law, when you break the law of Moses, distress will come, and that will come with illness, famine, defeat. Second time around, you'll have drought and fruitless land. Third time, dread of dangerous wild animals that would come in and clear the land. Fourth time, disease and desolation by enemies. And the fifth and final point in his discipline of his child Israel would be devastation, desolation of their land, and deportation to be carried away. And this is what happened when they sinned, the unpardonable sin, the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel. They said, no, he is not for us. And God says, this land then will be taken away from you until you are restored to fellowship. This is a temporary chastening, but they got the maximum temporal punishment because of their continual rebellion. They are still God's son. They still have promise and they still have hope and they will be restored at his return. But God said, no more chances. You're done. I cannot trust you. Until I return, you're off the playing field. We are also given stages. The first stage we can observe from Scripture is warning. When we are out of fellowship with God, we are warned to restore fellowship, to come to Him and to agree with Him about our sinfulness. Revelation 3.18 sees a church that is receiving this warning. Laodicea gets a very bad rap, and they were not in fellowship with God, but Laodicea is not the worst church in the seven churches in Revelation. They are out of fellowship and apathetic towards God, and he is warning them against further digression in their rebellion against him. He says, I advise to you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. He's speaking of eternal reward that they are missing out on because they are out of fellowship and not walking in the works that he prepared for them. To buy from him white garments so that they may clothe themselves. Practical righteousness, the outworking of God's righteousness working in them. Remember 1 John chapter 3, verses 4-10 through 10, talks about the imputation of Christ's righteousness onto us, that it allows us to walk practically in his righteousness also. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. 
an eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Remember the spiritual myopia that John warned about in 1 John 2.11, that the one who hates his brother walking out of fellowship is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's out of fellowship with God who is light. The warning then in Revelation 3.19 comes to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He is warning them that they are stepping towards divine discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent, change their minds about the things that they are doing. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, an offer of fellowship. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. God promises to this church that if they rebound in their rebellion, that he will restore fellowship if they agree with him. Stage two is suffering. Living in rebellion against God produces suffering. Now, 1 Peter 3.17 says it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, I think a lot of believers find their divine discipline to be suffering for Christ when in fact it is suffering in rebellion against Christ. But also, unfortunately, some who are suffering for Christ might look at this as somehow divine discipline. We want to know God's word so that we know his will, so that we know if we are walking in fellowship with him in his will or outside of it. The only way to guard against this is to become mature in his word. We want to be sure that it is better to suffer as an enemy of Satan's cosmos system than as a rebel against God's kingdom. So is your issue with the discipline from God? Then repent. It's not going to get better if you continue in rebellion. But is your suffering coming from the world? Then persevere, as God says to the church of Smyrna, He says, after 10 days, you're going to be taken into jail and you're going to lose your lives. You are physically going to die for the sake of the gospel that you believe in. There is reward waiting for you in heaven. But Revelation 2.20 has in view the worst church of the seven in Revelation, the church of Thyatira. It says, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. She's a false teacher, what John calls an antichrist in chapter 2, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, consistent with God's offer of grace before judgment. But she does not want to repent of her immorality. She continued in rebellion against him. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. She's actually hit stage three here if she was ever a believer. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, suffering. Stage two, unless they repent of their deeds, the opportunity for them to repent is still there. But stage three is dying in rebellion. Life that persists in rebellion against God after having become a believer 
means that God might take you off the playing field. Now, as my uh, theology professor once uh, chided, he said, people who say grace has no teeth do not understand grace because it is God's grace not to allow us to become a disgrace. And God will take his children home if they refuse to grow up. Revelation 2.23 says, I will kill her children with pestilence. They will also hit stage three of divine discipline if they do not repent as they right now have the opportunity to. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your deeds. Now remember who we are in Jesus Christ. This is a severe threat. This is the greatest shame that we can experience in the body of Christ. And people don't like this explanation because they say it has no teeth. It ought to be the threat of eternal damnation. But they make a mockery of Christ in his finished work when they do that. When they try to say the sin unto death is unbelief, meaning that this person has never believed in Jesus Christ, well, first of all, they cannot possibly be a brother if they have not believed and become children of God. But, for, or, but John, the gospel, chapter 11, verse 25, says, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus speaking to Martha. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. These believers who die in rebellion against God will live even after their death. They are part of the resurrection of Christ. What they miss out on is reward. See, Ephesians 2.10 says that we have works already prepared for us. Paul also speaks of crowns that are permanent, indestructible. For our works come rewards, and they are already waiting for us. These rewards are not forged once the works are completed, because the works are completed in Christ's power and we walk in them. It is likely that many Christians will get to heaven and see the rewards that could have been theirs had they only walked with the Lord, had they only grown up and matured and spent their lives living for him rather than against him. This will be a sad day for some, but it will not be a day of hellfire for any who have the eternal life of Jesus Christ. And so grace does have teeth. But that's as scary as it gets. However, that is, that is a reason to follow the Lord. To bend to his will. To learn his will and to do it. Now I'm going to skip all these examples. I had already planned to skip all but two of them. But I'll skip all of them. These are believers who sinned unto death, as examples in scriptures, Lot and his family. Lot was righteous, the book of Hebrews tells us. But when we meet him in Genesis 18 and 19, does he look very righteous? No. And in fact, by the petitions of Abraham, he is rescued. Because Lot is willing to go when God reproves him. 
when he drags him out of that sinful lifestyle. But guess what happens to his wife? She's not willing. She looks around, she continues in her rebellion, and she loses her physical life. Whether or not she was ever a believer and is saved, I do not know. But Lot was a believer, and Lot was restored by the prayers of Abraham. The rebellion of Korah. You can read about this in Numbers. All of Israel was saved when they came out of Egypt. They were all eternally secured, putting their trust in God for salvation. But Korah rebelled against God's chosen. Moses rebelled against the will of God when he struck the rock twice after being told, do not strike it twice. His punishment was to die physically before entering the land of Canaan. In fact, all of first century or first, the first century of Israel out of Egypt rebelled against God's will and died physically before entering the land of Canaan. Nadab and Abihu and King Saul all died for offering sacrifices which were not prescribed by God, and even in direct rebellion against God in the case of King Saul. Ananias and Sapphira claimed that they brought all of their uh, offering so that in the face of people they might look like uh, wealthy donors or uh, having given everything, but it turns out they were lying. They held a bit back, and you know, they had every right to hold a bit back, but they had no right to lie about it. They were rebelling against God's will. And then some Corinthians, as we see in 1 Corinthians 11, and they were just a rotten church when we meet them in 1 Corinthians. When we meet them in 2 Corinthians, they have improved. But there are some who are taking the fellowship elements of communion outside of fellowship in open rebellion against God. And it says that some of them are sick and some of them have even fallen asleep because of their rebellion. And this is a New Testament euphemism for dying in Christ, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, those who are asleep in Christ. But now the last issue I want to hit, and I've gone way over time, so I do apologize to everyone, but the last issue I want to hit this morning is, why does John tell us he's not telling us that we should make requests for those who have sinned unto death? For those who have their direction faced towards death, why does he say, I'm not telling you to pray for this? Because the negative volition of a rebellious sinner is not going to be overcome by the volition of God. God wants that no one, or that God wants that everyone be saved. God wants for all believers to grow up and mature. But if this believer is refusing to accede to God's will, God is not going to overpower his will. This is the permissive will of God. So God makes a guarantee to the intercessor to restore a fellow believer whose sin does not persist to the point of death. But he makes no such guarantee for the believer who refuses to restore fellowship through the rebound restoration of 1 John 1.9. Now I think of this as uh, sometimes I go over to my sister's to play with my nephew, and he likes playing Nerf guns, so we have Nerf Wars. And occasionally, instead of shooting Uncle Dane, he chooses to shoot Mom. And at first he gets a look, and then a stern warning, Ben, you know better. And then, Ben, you're going to get a timeout. And finally it's, all right, Ben, bedtime. You're done. 
I can't trust you. And no, he will whine and he will cry. And he will try to have anything still in his control that he possibly can. No, I want the door open. No, I want the door closed. I want the fan on. I want the fan off. Because he knows he cannot control one thing. It is bedtime. He is going home. My sister cannot trust him anymore to play that evening. He has progressed beyond her trust. And it's time to come home. Someone who has persisted in rebellion may even confess their sins as they near death. This doesn't mean God can now trust them. John has made a guarantee that our prayers to restore one who's still trustworthy will be answered. But one who has consistently lived in rebellion so long that God just says, no, it's time to come home. He's not going to answer this prayer because this has a different purpose. This is no longer discipline. This is no longer punishment. This is saying, my grace to you is that you no longer be allowed to be a disgrace to yourself. It's time to come home. And so because God loves us, because God loves this sinner who is struggling so much with the world, it is his love and it is his grace to spare him continual disgrace by his own rebellion and to say, let's go to bed. Time to sleep. As promised, 1 John 5.17 does say that all unrighteousness is sin. This is once again John clarifying that there is not a specific kind of sin that leads to death and a specific kind of sin that no matter if you keep doing it or not, you're not really going to die about die for it. Ananias and Sapphira lied. That was their sin unto death. That was their rebellion that merited death. We don't know their lives before that, but we do know that they knew what they were doing. I'll finish with this, which we're going to look at next week, so I won't go into much detail here. John is going to give us some encouragement with three things that we know for certain. One is that we know if we are born of God, that we do not sin. This is the new nature. If there is persistent sin in the life of the believer, they are living in their old nature. They're not conquering the old nature by continuing to believe and trusting in the Lord. But he was born of God. That's speaking of Jesus here. The one who was born of God keeps him, our security. And the evil one does not touch him. The believer that sins unto death is not handed over to Satan for the destruction of his spirit. He is eternally secure in Jesus and in God the Father. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So the main idea this morning was Because we are children of God, we can come to him confidently with our requests and never fear that he has not heard us or answered our prayers. When we are in fellowship, we pray in his will and our prayers are granted. It is God's will that we love each other by praying for one another and the spiritual growth and maturity of our siblings in Christ. God will faithfully restore the believer whose rebellion against God has not resulted in maximum temporal punishment being physical death. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, we thank you so much for the grace and hope that we see in your word. We thank you that you have revealed your will to us so that we know that we can live in it and we know what it is. We pray that we would be faithful to pray in your will. And when you show us the sin in our own lives, that we are willing to agree with you that that is sinful and to let you deal with that in our lives and to cleanse us from that sin. We thank you for the gift of fellowship in which we are able to pray for the restoration of one another. We thank you that you have not led us to live our lives alone, but that you have given us one another that we might experience the love of Christ as we pray for one another and support one another as we await your soon return. We praise you in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.